Welcome to episode 51 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Gentlemen, how is it going with you uh, tonight? Doing good. I've been hustling away on the UMC, making motorcycle parts, so that's been super fun. What about you, Eddie? Yeah, I uh, just wrapped up the that big uh, textile guy job, 200 parts shipped as of, uh, I want to say Tuesday. So I'm just uh, really good to get that done. And I've been going over my notes from that job and the areas where I ran into some trouble and just been doing some test cuts to see like for next time, if I ever get those same features that I have to do on some, some other parts. Um, I can kind of do a better job. Main thing is my my usual bane, the uh, Harvey Long Reach stubs. <laughs> Those guys always give me trouble. Um, I was trying to run uh, some. I think the smallest one I was running. Actually, I ran a bunch of them on that job, and they all went well, or they all worked well except for the uh, one millimeter, ten X Reach. Um, that guy I broke a few. This <laughs> is <just> that way. <laughs> so uh, I actually. Uh, after kind of looking at the cam and, and simulation and everything, uh, I was running like Harvey speeds and feeds, which works really well on all the other long reach steps. Um, but for some reason, the one millimeter was just running into trouble. And then I realized I was using it as the ball, ball end mill, I was using it for a finishing op. And you gotta really look out for, you know, since you don't really have any control over the depth of cut on finishing passes and fusion, it was uh, actually running into, a section of the part that had a little too much material left behind from the roughing. That's what was going on. It was basically exceeding the depth, you know, recommended depth of cut in that one little section and basically breaking every time I hit that corner. So uh, I didn't realize it until after the parts were done. Basically, um, the customer was like, well, we can go with a little bit bigger. Like they opened that feature up for me a little bit so I could use the 1 16th and that worked fine. Um, but I've been practicing with the one millimeter uh, today, just kind of just doing some slotting and some uh, like finishing passes with the ball, and so far, like I can run running at about 120 percent of Harvey's speeds and feeds by just well, really it's the same speed and feed, but turning up the RPM. Like, I was kind of keeping it at 25k since it's not uh, a balanced tool, but it's really pretty small, so I don't think I have to worry about that. So kind of pushing it up to like 33,000 RPM and you know, increasing the feed rate, keeping the same chip or two, and it's going pretty good. So I think. Uh, do you have any concerns with like chip evacuation when you're slotting with such a tiny tool? Uh, so I basically have the air turned way up, and uh, I haven't run any problems. I so today I was doing. I'll post the video later, but I was doing slots uh, with the one millimeter tool to a depth of six millimeter, and then tomorrow I'll push it to like eight millimeters, which is it's an eight x tool. Um, I broke my 10x, <laughs> so I don't have any of those left. But uh, the 8x is all probably, you know, if I can get a good speed and feed reliable recipe for that for sliding and roughing or pencil, really, like I normally use that for like a pencil op. Um, rest after roughing and finishing, I'll, uh, I'll basically bank that and have it for next time. 
But I can tell you those tools, the long reach stubs run much better on the Neo than any of my hobby machines. So definitely, I think the issues I've been running into, like on the V250 with that kind of tool is all rigidity. Because I have the same RPM, um, I'm in the same feed rate because you can't really run those tools very fast, even though the Neo's got fast feed rate, I'm staying below a thousand millimeters per minute, um, which I can hit on the V250. But definitely, is, I think rigidity is the, the piece that's missing from the equation on the hobby machines. That uh, I, I think you've run into the same thing, Chris, right? You get some really bad chatter with those tools. Uh, yeah, uh, it's like every machine is different. You know, like I, I've been noticing, especially on the UMC, there's definitely certain RPMs that it fares a lot better. And that's what I spent last Saturday kind of diving into is uh, we finished some of the production stuff. So I was just, so I spent like a couple hours just doing testing and then trying to figure out like what is the lowest vibration RPM out of the 15,000. Seems to be like 7,000-ish. I, I don't have any like equipment to test that. It's just kind of by feel and spindle load, you know, so. And when I'm, when I'm seeing it cut, yeah, which I don't like. So what tool, uh, what tool were you testing with? Uh, what diameter? All of them. The the Mitsubishi ASX, um, the half-inch helical tools, um, the quarter-inch. I'm just kind of going through the whole gamut. Yeah. I mean, you've run some of the, like, the Harvey Long Reach stubs on your pocket NC, right? Have you, did you have problems with them? I was thinking you did. Uh, right? Yeah, the problem I had was the same that you, you just described as, like, um, I didn't have the minimum radius set, so it was trying to bury itself into, like, these corners. So once I added that restriction of don't go past, you know, two times or whatever, then it, it was fine as long as I maintained, you know, whatever surface feed in chip load and stuff. But usually Harvey tools, I've been able to go um, one and a half, two times faster than what it says. Same thing with he same thing with helical, like their their thing is very safe. So you can probably go twice as fast from what I've seen so far or even even yeah, even faster if you really want to push it. But um, even at doubling it, my spindle load is only like at 40%. So it definitely wasn't pushing that hard. Yeah, I think I'm going to try that. So like I said, I'm up to about 120% of their recommended speed. And uh, I mean, depending on how high I want to go on the RPM, I could I could probably go uh, closer to 200. So actually, uh, on the sewing guys, I could go back and look. I actually, I did ramp that up pretty high because that was like one of my slower ops. I had to do a bunch of slots with a 1 um, I want to say it was 10X. I think that was a 10X tool. And uh, and it was running so well, I basically just kept pushing it up. Every every time I ran a plate, I pushed it up a little further. And I don't know, I can't even remember where I ended up, but uh, trimmed a lot of time off the, the run. Um, so yeah, that's definitely true. I think the Harvey, Harvey speeds and feeds are fairly conservative and definitely have room for or, or leave room to go faster, right, with the right machine. Yeah, so that's all. I got all that stuff shipped. Uh, have a bunch of like leftover stock aluminum plates, you know, with like cookie cutters cut out of them. So uh, got some good stuff for the recycler. How about you, Winston? What you been up to? Uh, honestly, just getting through a video backlog right now. Um, hopefully. By the time this podcast goes live, the um, the Skiloco gantry lighting video will be done. Uh, I actually ran into some issues earlier this past week, like in the middle of getting some B-roll for the video. Um, the the circuit just completely died on me, and I lost like all lighting. And I was panicking for a second because I was like, "There's a there's a couple shots I really want to get to wrap up this video." Um, so I, I sort of just faked it. I 
plug the LEDs, the, the right channels, directly into a 5 volt supply, got the shot I needed, um, and then I started troubleshooting. Uh, turns out my soldering job was terrible, and there was just um, two blobs of solder that had sort of touched, but they didn't merge. So there's just a tiny, tiny point of contact, and if you measured across it with uh, multimeters, you could actually, uh, it registered as like a, a 50 to a 70 ohm uh, resistive gap. Um, so that was on my, my 5 volt rail, so all of my ICs and LEDs, they were all underpowered. Um, and that's actually, I think, uh, causing issues with my controller because my machine was unstable when I had it connected. Um, I'm sure there's an electrical engineer out there who knows uh, better than I do, but what I think was happening was um, the, the intermittent uh, resistance of that bad solder joint combined with the uh, slight capacitive effect of a uh, NPN transistor uh, times three um, caused a small, just a little ripple in the current that was feeding back into the controller, um, and that was causing the controller to drop out. So I have fixed all the issues. I think it runs okay. Uh, so hopefully by the time the video goes live, um, the thing is still working, and I can release it in good conscience uh, that everything works. Um, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty pleased with everything, and I think I've. Uh, done the Datron aesthetic justice. Cool. Yeah, I really like the kind of the previews I saw a couple weeks ago. And, oh, uh, just you wait. <laughs> the, uh, the fun thing is um, because Carbide recently released the, uh, the Bitrunner, the, uh, basically the G-code enabled relay, I can have a spindle turn on and have the colors change in the gantry. And uh, for the video, I paired it with the DeWalt router. So there's built-in LEDs in that router. So you get the illumination of where you're cutting combined with the gantry lighting effect. So overall, it's it's pretty sweet. Yeah, I mean, just the whole Skeloco concept was pretty cool, even without the lights. I thought that was pretty cool. So yeah, I'm glad you did that. And Chris, what you said you've been doing motorcycle parts on the UMC. Have you touched your hobby machine since you got the UMC? <laughs> Uh, I've touched them to move them around the garage, but I haven't. Uh, I haven't turned them on yet. Actually, somebody approached me and wanted to buy the Nomad because he wanted to get into uh, CNC stuff. Like he went to school for some of that and never, never completed or went through with it. So he stopped by the shop and saw us working on the UMC and was interested. And then I started talking about it. So um, I don't know if I have the heart to sell the Nomad though. It's kind of uh, super nostalgic for me. So, uh, I mean, if you sell it, you'll just have to get a new one. <laughs> right. But that, that was the one that I learned on, you know, like two years ago and started this whole thing. So I'm not sure if I'm ready to part with that. I might let him borrow it, but I don't know if I'd give it to him. Yeah. Um, I can tell you, if you're not, if you're not using it much and you get it into the hands of somebody who really wants it and uses it, you'll feel good about that too. I can tell you from experience. Yeah. yeah I, I, I told him like, if he's really interested, I'll, I'll help him and teach him and stuff like that. Get him going and whatnot, but uh, we'll, we'll see what he says. He also coincidentally is the Snap-on rep, so it's definitely not a bad shoulder to rub on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm probably gonna. Uh, I'm thinking about selling off the um, the V210 because I don't. I don't really use it that much now. That I have the V250. V250. I'm keeping for sure. I love that machine. Um, yeah, we'll see. Kind of. I'll wait a little bit. I mean, I I was kind of keeping it around because I still do occasional test pieces for 
pocket and see like prospective customers, but actually almost all that's on B250 now. So, um, yeah, I'll see, we'll see probably maybe, uh, in fall I'll, I'll say goodbye to it. it that's kind of the same thing. It's sentimental attachment to it. <laughs> My first five axes, but, uh, but yeah, I need the room. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I actually, I have, a. I'm going to be putting a, a granite surface blade in my in the in the spare bedroom workshop, like a 36 by 24 big one. <laughs> well, big for me, right? Compared to my like my current surface plate is, I think it's eight inch by eight inch. It's the little one that Tormach sells with their height gauge, and and for like most of my parts, that's been fine, you know, with the with the little uh, manual height gauge and stuff. But uh, I'm starting to get you know some of the challenges for the parts I'm making now, I need to, I need to up my metrology game. So that's going to be my first kind of big move is <laughs> get a decent surface blade in here and, uh, use that, you know, I need a good reference surface. So, um, yeah. So room is going to be at a premium in here for a while. Yeah. Um, other than that, uh, you know, the wheels have been coming out great. They're super happy with them. Um, I made them six wheels so far, different designs front and back. And then we've been working on uh, a true five axis part, which is an intake. So that'll be, we have a bunch of complex curves and stuff like that. So we're, we're still developing that one though. Um, is, is that still scooter parts or? Motors, for motorcycles. motorcycles, yeah. Okay. For like um, carbureted? Yeah, for carbureted, yeah. Yeah, these are like, it's the word, uh, vintage motorcycles, right? No, these are new. They're, they're, just, they're just smaller CC, like 250 under. You know, 125, 250, uh, 150, that kind of thing. Um, they, they kind US of, market or elsewhere? Yeah, U.S. market. It, it, there, there's a very huge, like, under 250cc market for motorcycles. Um, it's very niche, but it's very big. There, there's, a, there's a lot of, like, you know, I guess the, the, the thinking behind it is, you know, you can buy one of these motorcycles for, like, three grand, and then you can spend, you know, 10 grand to upgrade it and stuff. And that's still more than you can do if you bought a Ducati for 10, 13 grand. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have any more money left over to do so. So I think that's the appeal of it is that you can buy something relatively cheaper, relatively smaller. And then there's a bunch of like rides in California. Like every month or every year they have these super uh, rides and stuff where thousands of people come out and ride. And they're all these souped up mini motorcycles and there's like a huge culture around them. That's cool. I mean, they're full size frame, right? They're not those like, not literally the mini, like those. No, tiny. yeah, no, yeah, no. Okay. I, you, I can show you a picture later. Um, but it, 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 like it sits an adult, no problem. Um, it, it's just, I'd seen yeah. bikes like that, like in, uh, Japan, like the, in a lot of places that have like the displacement restrictions on learner learner riders right they have the small bikes but uh, i didn't know that was i didn't know you could get anything like under 250 cc in the u.s that's pretty cool yeah yeah and i didn't know how big it was until i got my i got a honda grom 125 and that was the one that i raced on the track and when i got into that scene that's when i discovered like whoa there's like a huge amount of people uh, who are into this and they do, do a lot of crazy stuff with their bikes so it was kind of fun so yeah and these are uh four stroke right they're not two stroke mm -hmm. four stroke 
Okay. Yeah, two stroke would be fun at that displacement, but yeah. <laughs> I, I personally hate two stroke bikes, but for other reasons, <laughs> only because uh, one one of our endurance races, I got stuck behind one, and I was basically eating his exhaust for like an hour. Uh, so you didn't like that? They're just loud. And, yeah. Um, yeah. If they're nice <laughs> about it, they'll pour that. They'll pour like this uh, 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 gas smeller thing, so that it actually makes the exhaust smell like a, a different smell, like a fruit or something, like strawberry or whatever. Like, <laughs> potpourri. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's been fun right. for like besides what I'm making, it's just been fun just uh, being part of the process of uh, making something and fine tuning and then developing it for the bike itself. So we have a prototype bike on a stand and we're like fitting it and checking things and you know, testing things out. So that, that's always been fun for me. So it's been interesting to do that. Um, I finally cut, I finally have them kind of squared away. So I think next week or the following week, I'll be able to put my own projects on, um, and start making some of the stuff that I can film, uh, you know, more and more in detail and stuff. Cause that intake, I don't think I want to put on the site until we release just because of competitors and stuff like that. Um, but the other things like my personal stuff is just fun stuff. So I can put that on there. Yeah, I was gonna ask you how's how's the rest of the the team over there like taking to the Haas control and the and five axis. It's like like they're, they're loving it. Yeah, like thirty minutes they got it because they have they have they have very they have a good mechanical sense because obviously they've been working on bikes they have fabrication skills uh, far superior than mine and this is just like one other little thing they had to pick up but dude they picked up the Haas controller so fast exactly what I was expecting like how simple and easy it is to learn. Um, it was easy to teach and they picked it up quickly. And now they're, uh, I have them going through like the NYC CNC videos and also the Titan of CNC like uh, files where they're, you know, the 1M, 2M, 3M where they download the thing, they get a print, they, they make the model, they program and we make the part. So we're doing one a week right now. And then it's been helping them kind of, uh, it's almost like more structure than me just giving them a random thing to make, so. They've been kind of following that. They got to be loving the zero point setup. Yeah, they got spoiled. I mean, they know because they have, they're the ones that have the older Cincinnati. And uh, I, I had to try to teach them how to set the work corner offset for that one if they ever got lost. And that was kind of a nightmare. So this has been a godsend for them, like how, how easy it is. Yeah. I'm assuming there was no probing on the Cincinnati, right? Nope. You had to get an indicator out. <laughs> yep. <and> <laughs> Get a reference point, or we get you know make sure we mill two services to pick up again and all that stuff. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, not only that, but the controller was a nightmare. So that that was the worst part. Yeah. So you, you tell me basically we got this really fancy machine with the probe, and you'll never have to use the probe. <laughs> Speaking of machines, um, I don't know if you saw the the announcement on my uh, Instagram account, but uh, Phantom Tools has a new machine coming out. So they're finally starting to talk about it. I think it's called the. The Bantam Tools desktop CNC mill instead of like desktop PCB mill. So I actually got, I got to see it when I was up in uh, Peekskill late last year. I went up there and just kind of toured their new headquarters and got to make some test cuts on what was basically an early, earlier developed, you know, basically the test mill for that, for what's uh, getting ready to go into production. So they made a lot of changes to it since I saw it, um, but it was, it was actually doing pretty good back then. Uh, I think they're... So they basically released a few teaser videos and they posted a, they haven't released the specs on the machine yet. I think that's coming in the next few weeks, but they responded to some of the questions in the comments on their post. Um, machining area is going to, or machining envelopes can be 
at least twice as big as the current Bantam machine, which is like the current one's 5.5 by 4.5 by, I want to say one point, caught 1.6 inches in Z. So uh, yeah, so quite a bit bigger machine volume. And they were teasing that like this, everyone's been asking like how fast the spindle is and they're saying it well north of 15K. Um, I know that's actually much closer to 30K. <laughs> so yeah, they're, they're always, they've been kind of known for their high-speed spindles on the hobby class machines, so they're kind of continuing that trend. Uh, so I'm thinking, you know, this is gonna be a really good machine for Daytron single flute tooling in aluminum. Um, I think, you know, they kind of designed it ground up for machining aluminum, although it'll, you know, obviously do other materials, but uh, the PCB and mill wasn't designed for aluminum, but actually did a pretty decent job considering its limitations on power, spindle power and stuff. But um, this one was kind of, you know, from day one, they that was, the design goal was to be pretty decent uh, desktop aluminum milling machine. Um, is there like yes. a is there like an air blast or anything like that? I don't know actually. I don't know if there's a coolant system or air blast or what. Um, so that's one of the things. I, so I'm still waiting to hear like some of the details myself. Um, you know, I know what I know from seeing it last year, but like I said, that was it was just kind of mid development at that point. So it's it's changed and continue to get some features that. Uh, that I don't even know about yet. So, yeah, so I'm hoping to hoping to find out just like everybody else is in the next week or so when they start releasing info. Because it's got to be soon because they're going to, um, their plan is to start taking orders next month and start shipping in August, you know, assuming, you know, they don't get stuck in another COVID lockdown on the Northeast. But uh, that's the current plan. So it won't be long before, you know, there's these things are showing up on people's uh, porches. So, and of course, Pocket and C's continue to work on their, uh, I think I don't know if it's officially going to be called the Pocket NC Pro, but that's that's what I've been calling it. Um, you know, so they're kind of their bigger five-axis machine. I, I know Matt, the machine designer and founder over there, has been showing stuff pretty steadily on his Instagram page. Their big milestone is they finally got the uh, 40k RPM spindle. They've been testing, I think, with the 18 or 24k the last few months, but um, they put a 40k RPM IMT eco spindle, like what's on the pretty much pretty similar to what's on the Neo. Um, they just got that on there and they've been doing some test cuts. I think he posted some of those last week. That's going to be basically closer to the production configuration on that machine. So I'm real excited to see where it goes with the 40K. And um, they didn't show it in the post, but I was talking to Matt and he said it was okay to, to share this. <laughs> so it was something I saw really cool in a, a private video he showed me. So they actually have load monitoring on all the axes in addition to the spindle. So it's like the only time I've ever seen that was when Marvin showed me on the Heidenhain at Kern. Um, although it's probably you know, it's probably on other machines, but um, first time I'd ever seen it, I thought those were kind of cool. Uh, but they have that. I'm not sure how they're doing it. If they have got scales on the machine or if they're just looking at like load on the servos. But uh, pretty cool to see that. It's definitely be useful for speeds and feeds development on that machine. The Haas has uh, spindle load monitoring, doesn't it? Spindle load monitoring is pretty common, um, and that's usually just current, like looking at current, right? Current's doing something completely different, probably much more accurate, but I'm pretty sure what PNC is doing is current monitoring on the axis and on the uh, on the spindle. Yeah, no, no, what was cool to me was seeing it on the axis. Like uh, I saw it on the linear axis. I don't, I couldn't tell like from the UI he was showing me if it's also on the rotary axis, but um, but definitely like you could see the cutting load. When this when the tools engage versus just cutting in air, like you could see the 
increase in, in power consumption on like the x-axis which is pretty cool so i thought that was pretty neat not sure where they're going with that if that's going to be in the production one um, or if that was just something they had turned on for development we'll have to wait till pnc tells us more about that i'm uh, i'm looking at matt's post right now and uh three cubic inches using 110 volt power that's kind of interesting to me um, just because a lot of the professional machines, they always tend to 220. So, uh, I mean, I know it's still going to be way out of my price range, but it's kind of nice having a, a machine run off standard wall power. Yeah, I think that was always one of their design goals, and I think you can run it on 220 also. Um, I'm not quite sure how they're doing the 110 to 220, if it's like always 220 and they're using a trans step-up transformer, or if it's basically, you know, switching, like a power supply, you can switch between the two voltages. Yeah, so the those cuts, I don't know. I've been trying to find out what tooling they're using. I'm curious if they've tried the single flute yet, because you know, especially when they put the 40k spindle in there, there's like, you know, at least Daytron has some pretty well tested speeds and feeds for that spindle. Um, just you know, it's not obviously not the same machine, but but spindle power should be similar. I'm kind of curious how well if like rates will go up or down as far as material removal. Um, don't think they have a cooling system installed on the test machine yet. I think that's coming at a later a later iteration. Uh, yeah, actually they probably couldn't run the Daytron speeds and feeds on, definitely couldn't run it dry. <laughs> I learned that the hard way on my <laughs> on my Neo when I tried to do it. But, uh, uh, before I got the compressor straightened out, yeah, it just, the speeds and feeds are uh, definitely with ethanol flowing heavily. So, um, but yeah, I'm kind of curious how those tools are gonna do or, you know, or basically lower flute count single flute probably be best for that but uh, I think they're running like some multi-flute tools on some of the tests just from the sound it kind of I don't know if that's the ideal RPM range I don't know I'm kind of curious so the COVID thing kind of messed things up but I was hoping to get over there this year and get a chance to look at it um, in the lab there but hopefully maybe later this year I'll get a chance to play around with it and uh, we'll see I don't know if I'll be able to say anything about it but uh until later but yeah but i have a million questions i want to answer at least for myself yeah i'm pretty it's good it's great to see actually that you know these hobby machine companies are stepping up their game i mean these 30k 40k spindles like you're 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 putting yourself in daytron league but i think at a fraction of the cost right like i'm not sure how strong the spindles are but at least it's it's pushing the boundaries a little bit so that that's really good to see and super exciting for anyone that's in getting into it now i guess like you know versus what the options were available before kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's a different type of machining, the higher RPM, high feed rate. Um, you know, it works really well in aluminum. I don't know if that's really what you'd want for hogging out tool steel. <laughs> um, but most of, you know, especially on the hobby machines, they're not really rigid enough for those kind of cuts anyway. So higher RPM light cuts makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and it kind of helps you you know, keep up the material removal rate, at least in aluminum, you know, which is typically, those machines are kind of for prototyping workloads anyway. Um, so that's, you want to kind of be good in the materials that are used commonly for prototyping, Delrin and aluminum and whatever else, some of the other engineering plastics. So it's going to be a good year. Cause I'm, I'm sure C3D is working on stuff. Um, everybody seems to be, you know, have been working for a few years. It's probably, um, next 12 months i would assume we're going to see kind of a whole new generation of uh desktop slash compact cnc machines uh, moderate prices 
So, You're good not time. wrong. Um, yeah, it's a good time. I just to be can't a maker. say anything other than the fact that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know you guys aren't be... just sitting there doing nothing, so I'm sure there's there's something yeah. coming. Um, so yeah, at least you know the three companies I've kind of been working with for the last several years on the on the desktops, high machines. It's kind of an exciting time for all of y'all, I think. So and for the the end users, right? I think it's never a better time to be getting into like desktop CNC. So I think there's going to be some good choices out there in the next few months. Yeah, um, I think digital fabrication is definitely. Um, I mean, there's still that like people need to learn how to use these machines well, um, but we're reaching a point now where like there are three different people I follow um, or am friends with who are now making uh, Fusion 360 courses. So like the the information on how to create 3D models, how to do CAD, CAM, like it's starting to really come out in force. And especially with the whole COVID thing going on, I think a lot of people are uh, trying to learn and improve their skill set. Uh, so, I mean, hopefully, uh, I, I think it's you're right that there's never been a better time to get into CNC stuff and just digital manufacturing in general. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Chris, I was kind of teasing you a little bit about have you touched the hobby machine since you got the UMC, but um, I'm kind of in that same boat. Um, I actually fired up the the uh, BT50 and ran like it's been so long I had to run the hour long spin, or the 50 minutes spin the warm up, so that was kind of a, my moment of shame there. But um, yeah, I was basically running some Delrin on it while the the Neo was tied up all day doing those aluminum parts. So I was like, I had no machine available to me and I was like oh wait yes I do <laughs> I was like, oh, God, I got the the, the V250 and the Bantam machines in here so I was coming in here like just making this little uh, it's actually a no go a go no go temporary go no go gauge holder um, but yeah I did that on the V250 I should have filmed it but it was kind of a boring part it was just a cylinder with a hole in it so <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't film it but uh, but it was kind of cool that, I mean it's kind of neat to run that machine again after so long and uh it's like, I got to start getting back into doing some of the five axis stuff. So uh, I'm getting the itch to do that again. And keep keep two spindles going here as much as possible at a minimum. Mm -hmm. Question for you. Uh, how long is that spindle warm-up cycle? Normally? Like if you, I don't know, but you're talking about the V250 or the... Neo? Yeah, the V250. So normally it's... Um, 10 15, minutes yeah 10 15 yeah minutes. maybe 15 for the uh, if you haven't used it i want to say this is probably wrong but i want to say six days it kind of keeps track of how long it's been since you last turned the spindle and if it exceeds a certain amount of time then you have to run the longer warm-up because the issue is the the lubrication like the permanent lubrication in there it kind of settles right at the bottom over time because of gravity so they have to run the longer basically a slow it's it's longer because it's a slower ramp up right it takes an hour to get up to the top warm-up speed versus 10 minutes um to give the lubrication time to warm up and be distributed because you know those little tiny little bearings in there are very sensitive so uh even the neo is the same way like um it's a 10 minute warm-up on the neo unless i go more than it's about three days and then it's a hour warm-up <laughs> so uh yeah, I have a lot of incentive to warm that spindle up every day, even if I'm not using it, just to keep the lubrication distributed and the warm up shorter. But yeah, I think I think on the P two fifty, it's either fourteen minutes or fifty minutes, depending on how long it's been idle or not running. I think I might be going crazy, but I thought about 
um, just coding a quick, just 10 minute, just air cut for the Pocket NC, um, just to bring it up to thermal equilibrium. Because uh, I was doing a lot of the uh, little SpaceX Dragon capsules, and I was always wondering, um, there's probably uh, 50 degree Fahrenheit easily, if not 70 Fahrenheit um, differential between ambient to uh, once you've been cutting for an hour or two. And I did the back of the envelope math, and I think uh, it could be anywhere from like five to seven tenths of an inch, or ten thousandths of an inch in terms of thermal growth. And so I'm wondering if um, when I first start it up and I probe a tool, um, after I run it, after I run a couple more cycles, uh, when I stick that tool back in, should I reprobe now that it's actually warm? So I don't, I, I know this isn't a kern, but. The V210 spindle gets, the housing gets pretty hot. Um, the, the motor housing. So I'm sure that has some influence in the, actually the, V250 will, if you're running above like 45k RPM for a long time, it gets enough that it's probably got some thermal growth. Um, and you can kind of see it. I mean, it's hard to tell like when you probe, you know, cold versus this exact same tool after it's run for a while. Um, you'll see a difference in the probe depth, but it's kind of, there's some noise in that TLO probe anyway, so it's hard to kind of say if it's the noise or if you've actually seen some growth. But um, I've seen results in some of my cuts, like on the part, that make me think, you know, there's a little bit of thermal growth. The tool, for whatever reason, appeared to get longer, right? Um, like when I flip over and do the other side, uh, but, um, and like a previous part would maybe, or previous feature on that side doesn't have that issue. So it's like kind of seems to be runtime dependent. Uh, it's subtle, but, you know, it leaves a, um, like a parting line you can see or feel sometimes. Yeah. For me, the biggest issue is because I'm doing a rotary tool path, I'm rotating around the B axis, I go from zero to 360. So when it comes back, any difference at all is going to be super apparent. Uh, so that's why I started getting obsessive about uh, just reprobing my tools uh, once I swap them in fresh, once the spindles warmed up and all that, all that stuff. Yeah. And like you probably, Notice there's no there's no uh, warm up built in warm up routine for the V210. It wouldn't hurt to create one. I've actually I do uh, spend a warm up on the Bantam now that I wrote myself just because you know similar to the V250 is turning a pretty high RPM and if I let it sit for a while, I mean, maybe it's not necessary but it can't hurt. <laughs> you know what I mean? Kind of be nice to the bearings and give them a chance to to uh, get their lubrication warmed up before I start plowing away in aluminum on that, with that machine. So yeah, I just wrote my own little G code that basically based on the pocket and C G code does the same thing. But I just run the short one, like the 10 minute warm up on that or 14 minute on the Bantam and yeah, I haven't had any problems. Hmm. Yeah. So I will, uh, uh, probably take the plunge and just write a little something for the V210, uh, just to, uh, give me a little more peace of mind. Yeah, I wouldn't bother with like axis movements. Just just the spindle probably be all you really need. Yeah, although the uh, the chassis does um, get pretty warm. Um, I think the power supply built into that uh, main unibody chassis block um, it does warm everything up quite a bit. Uh, but in terms of the actual axis accuracy, 
uh, because the lead screws and the steppers are pretty well isolated from that block, I don't think there's too much thermal growth on that front. So most of it's all just in the the, the growth of the uh, spindle housing and the uh, tool uh, tool holder. Yeah, I know when I use um, so I have like a aluminum spoil. You've probably seen that round spoil board that I put on the rotary table sometimes. Um, when I, I use that for like double sided tape work holding because it's a nice flat surface, but I have to be like pretty quick with whatever I'm machining because it does like the whole machine warms up and the tape starts to get much less uh, adhesive right at higher temperatures that that uh, nitto tape. Yeah, so I notice that like the heat gets into that plate pretty quickly, like after about 40, 45 minutes. Even if it's just sitting idle, actually, it's probably worse because the steppers get pretty warm, right, when it's just holding position. But yeah, it definitely, uh, you definitely do notice some heat in the aluminum chassis on that machine. I guess the next step is to put a refrigerating or cooling unit inside the enclosure. <laughs> That'd be yeah. the next logical just, thing to do, right? Or just put the whole V250 in your fridge. Yeah. I, I remember I talked about getting like those, uh, like an old wine refrigerator and just putting the Nomad of the pocket and see inside. That yeah, like, wouldn't be bad. It's like, as long as you can keep the condensation down, <laughs> be pretty good. Be nice and quiet. Yeah, so I've got uh, upcoming, hopefully upcoming job to do some watch cases. Um, actually quoting that, we'll see how that goes. But uh, those should be, I haven't asked the client, hopefully I'll be able to show that work. Uh, this will be on the Neo this time. I did some on the Bantam recently for a different client, but um, hopefully this will be like done on the rotary axis. It's gonna be either brass or, they're saying brass or aluminum bronze or what was the other material they were interested in? Um, oh no, it's a different brass, uh, 260 brass, which is marine brass. I don't know anything about machining that. Have you guys ever machined 260? brass mm, negative uh can't say i have okay i think it's brighter like it's a prettier brass like aesthetically maybe i don't know if that's what they were why they were interested in it, or maybe it's just less tarnish or more tarnish resistant than 360 but um i don't i haven't even done any research to see if it's like a leaded brass like the 360 but but yeah so i'll probably be playing around with either that or aluminum bronze pretty soon um some small tools should be fun if I can show it. So how um, how are you doing like workload wise? Because I know you just finished a big job and now you have more stuff lined up. Are you like are you busy? Are you too busy? Do you have more capacity for work? Like where do you stand with all this work that you just randomly acquire? Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that because I, I was looking at um I'll put a link to it in our show notes so. Adam the machinist on or Adam the machinist Adam underscore the underscore machinist on Instagram. Demuth uh, he posted. Uh, I think it was late last year. Although I just saw it, he he posted a couple of posts about um, that very topic. Like he's he's running a shop in his house, like I am. You know, he was he was working for an employer in a job or in a shop at the employer um until last i think last year he went out on his own bought a moriseki really nice uh high rpm moriseki like small kind of a um unicorn machine and he has a i think he has a haas uh i don't know if he has a mini mill or his cm maybe he's got a haas and both of those in his garage or his home shop and you know he's for the most part doing he's got steady work coming from his previous employer like he, they basically just you know, he moved out on his own, but he's still doing the same work he was doing for them, um, and plus some other stuff. 
but you know he's he was kind of talking about he did this he made the move to to kind of keep the fun in the work so he's like he catches himself kind of like hustling too much you know trying to find that balance between hustling for the business and not burning himself out on the trade that he loves right so i'm kind of in that same boat um i don't know where my limit is yet so right now i'm kind of oriented towards growth um until i you know basically until i squeal <laughs> until i was like this is too much uh, i think that the job i took on the 200 parts was at the upper end of like uh, especially you know given the timeline it was it's not so much the quantity but the quantity and, and the delivery date together was probably about the limit of what I could do, right? I was, that, that was all I was doing for a few weeks while I was kind of getting those parts out. Um, towards the end, I kind of had it running on autopilot. It wasn't tying up my time much because the cam and the machine were basically running so reliably. I could just hit cycle start in the morning, put a camera out there, keep remote, you know, keep an eye on it remotely while I worked on something else inside. Um, but it took a while to get there, right? And so the next job, if it's different, right, it'll, may not run long enough for me to get to the point where it's kind of on autopilot. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of biased towards trying to find more prototyping work, uh, smaller, you know, smaller runs, interesting work, complicated. Um, but I'll take on occasional like bigger jobs like that just to kind of, it does help with the cash flow for the business. If you kind of have this, some of that regular work that becomes gravy after a while, if you're making the same parts over and over, you know, you, you don't have to worry about programming or anything like that, right? You just kind of, as long as you have the material on hand and and some free spindle time, right? You can run those parts. So I'm trying to find the right mix of that and uh, and the prototyping stuff I want to do. And somewhere along the line, I'll have to budget some time for fun stuff. So right now, that's all like the stuff I want to do for fun is kind of on the back burner, which is fine. I mean, this stuff's kind of pushing me to really learn the Neo, so I'm I'm okay with the. Um, like not having time to do fun parts yet but eventually that's going to kind of yeah I have to kind of figure I mean fun parts including my product line right that I want to work on so um, at some point it might not be till next year uh, I'm going to have to kind of create some you know carve out some time for my own parts either fun or product or whatever but uh, right now I'm just you know I'm pretty focused on taking outside work so I can get exposed to as much, I guess, different challenges as possible and get up to speed on this machine as fast as possible. So I definitely learned a lot doing this last uh, sewing guide job. That's gonna help me with anything I do in the future on that machine and kind of help me find the limits of that machine. Um, or found out that I'm not at the limits yet. It's probably the better explanation. Uh, machine ran like like a champ on these parts and I was pushing it hard towards the end, like, um, especially on the finishing. I was running the finishing tool like almost six meters a minute is rocking. It was like no change, no degradation, surface finish. Um, so I really like that kind of discovery that <laughs> I can run probably a lot faster than I think I can on some of these operations. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but yeah, it's, it's like you have to be careful, right? That you don't just burn yourself out because this is still supposed to be fun for me. Um, yet I have an expensive machine that I do want to kind of have it earn its keep and pay itself back. Uh, so there's a bias towards income production with the machine right now. And so, you know, as I get more of the machine's initial cost paid back, I'll probably feel less pressure on, in that regard and, you know, more, more time to do fun stuff. But, but uh, we'll see. I'm enjoying it. Like all the stuff that's coming in, I'm 
like pretty happy about it. Uh, it's interesting work. So right now I'm no complaints, right? No, that's good. Cause I know if I were in your position, like having just gotten a machine, not being familiar with it, I'd probably be freaking out. Like, um, cause I'm, I think back to some of the larger jobs I've done, um, where I was, I, I found myself kind of unprepared and it was kind of terrifying. Uh, not sure like if you could actually get it done, still turn a profit. Um, but not, it sounds like you're, uh, you're doing well. So I think, I mean, one big factor that probably was different from you was, um, I had a lot of help <laughs> on this particular job, uh, from the community. So yeah, big thanks to everybody. And starting with Adam, he was a big source of help. Uh, he was the initial referral for this work. And he gave me some tips, you know, he'd actually been making these parts before I did. So he had working cam and all kinds of stuff, um, which I didn't use his cam, but I was able to ask him questions about certain features and he knew exactly what I was talking about and told me what he used there. And it worked like a champ where I was stuck. Um, and then of course, Dave John, you know, had application questions. They were, they were like quick on the ball for helping with tooling and speeds and feeds on some of the tricky areas in that part, especially the finishing. And um, we haven't talked about much on the forum, I mean, on the podcast. Um, and I don't know if Datron's ready, but, <laughs> but they've created like a, there never has been a Datron user group, at least not in the US, or user forum, right, online. There was no, no place for the community to kind of just exchange messages and stuff like that. Like, you know, Carbide has the forums, right, for the Carbide owners. Um, so Datron USA, Datron Dynamics recently created a, a Datron users group on Slack. So uh, it's kind of small right now. I think it's still kind of in beta. So they're still, you know, slowly inviting Datron owners, not just Neo, but like all, all Datron machines. Right. Um, and it's not just us, like a lot of the Datron AG guys who are there and some of the, the, uh, Neo owners in like Austria that I, I kind of chat with, I brought them, uh, on board and it's been that's also been a very good source of um especially from the other neo owners for me like people that have been running neos for a few years i can kind of ask a question to get pretty good technical answer from people that like very familiar with the machine so that's been that's, that was a big source of uh, help too on this job so um yeah pretty much instagram insta machinist in the datron forum um i had a lot of people had my back helped a lot awesome to hear just uh just remember to uh set aside some time uh for me and chris to come over and play don't book yourself too heavily <laughs> <laughs> yeah so right now i think you know i've got this weekend I, I can do whatever i want so i'm working on the some test cuts like i mentioned um for stuff i know i have coming up in the future and stuff i know that gives me trouble right um but i i keep wanting i keep looking at my lanyard beads and like i want to run these at least 80 percent finished on the Neo, and then there's some five axis stuff that I gotta go do the final, like finishing on the V250. But most of the bulk removal, like between those two machines, I could be knocking out a lot of beads. And I promised those to some people, so <laughs> I gotta get to work on them. Random question: While you're you're touching on experimenting and learning, how do you guys keep track of like your good recipes? Do you have a notebook? Do you have an Excel spreadsheet? Are you using Airtable? What is your preferred method for sort of cataloging all this info? So not the most scientific process, but um, well, two things. Like historically, I 
I post my recipes on Instagram and share them with everybody, but it's also my archive, right? Um, so I can go back and find like a good speed and feed for aluminum with a particular tool. Um, I go find my post and like, oh, there's my speeds and feeds. And eventually like if I do it enough times, I have that, I save like a, I have like a folder on Fusion where I save my, like my test cuts, like the good ones. So that's kind of been my archive. Um, I can go in there and look at a particular tool, particular cut, like adaptive clearing. And I have notes like in the operation that tell me, you know, this was a good cut, this was a bad cut, or it ran good, but look out for this kind of thing. Um, that's, that's been enough for me. Like I don't actually, what I'd like to do at some point if I, in my copious free time, is go like consolidate all that into a spreadsheet so I could uh, share it with like the vendors like Bantam and, and uh, Pocket and C. But that's like, that's just gotta find the time, right? I'd almost probably wanna go retest some of that stuff because some of it's kind of old and I've probably done better cuts since then. So yeah, it's just, as you probably know, Winston, developing suites and feeds and documenting them, that's, it's painful. <laughs> and it's a lot of work, yeah. There's not a good way to keep track of all of it, especially with different styles of tool cuts between like your standard 2D tool pads and your adaptive HEM tool pads. I, I'm just finding myself overloaded with just numbers and, and just overflowing tables of like, how do you, like, do you have a table just for regular 2D full engagement cuts and adaptive cuts? And it's just, it's a lot to keep track of. Like I, I'm down to a pretty, at least with the, I was just kind of expanding again with the Neo, but with the V250, I was down to a pretty small core set of tools that I knew really well. Like I had the, basically a two millimeter and four millimeter single flute that I use in aluminum and Delrin. Um, you know, those are the two main materials I, I work with on there. Um, you know, I could have run a three millimeter or something else, but those, like I had both of those tools, I had the four millimeter, I think in 10 millimeter length. That's the only one I have. And then I had the two millimeter single flute and five, 11.5 and eight millimeter lengths. Like, I try to fit everything into those like roughing and stuff like that um, between those two tools. Like usually I'll come in there and do coarse roughing with the four millimeter. And then if there's some tight features, I'll go in there with the two millimeter and then finish with the whole, you know, have a large universe of finishing tools. Um, but for the roughing, like which is where the speeds and feeds is really critical. Um, yeah, so it helps a lot to kind of get down to two, maybe three tools that you use all the time if they're meeting your needs, right? And concentrate on getting good recipes for those um, may not be the right, you know, that might not be the right answer for like an MTB, like Carbide, who's got to really probably publish stuff for many more tools, right? That their customers could be using, but as an end user, you know, that's a strategy that I kind of stumbled on by accident, but it's working really, really well. Um, yeah, where it falls down is if you all of a sudden you need like a 1.5 millimeter roughing tool and you haven't run it before and you're kind of back to, to square one, right? <laughs> you have to go either find something on the internet or, or experiment, you know, set some time aside to experiment before you actually do your real, your real feature on the real part. The, uh, the tricky thing for me on the carbide side is that, um, people come from all different backgrounds, so I can't count on them to know how to do like a, a helical ramp in and fusion. They might just do, be doing like a straight plunge. So I have to uh, design the, the speeds and feeds for the lowest common denominator. Uh, but on my own personal end, like I know I've been trying to push faster on the pocket NC. Um, so like I've got a 
recipe I like with the uh, a quarter inch single flute. But as I try and expand my uh, my tool library, I'm just trying to figure out how do I want to keep track of everything. So I've been I've been using the template feature a lot, um, and that helps. And I have subcategories for things like uh, different materials, and my Naming, my naming convention for that template is super long because I'll do uh, diameter of the tool, uh, I'll do the stick out, you know, I'll do flute length, blah, 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 and I kind of put a majority of the notes in there. So just by browsing through my template, I can see what can I use that for. And I've also been trying to get into a better habit of not leaving any of my files with things that don't work. Because in the past, I kind of like have a smorgasbord of things in there. And sometimes if I open a file, I wasn't sure, like, I don't remember if that worked or not. And now I don't let it exist in any of my files unless I know it's been proven and it's at something that I'm happy with coming back to in the future. Um, so you, you're talking uh, Fusion Cam, uh, cam the templates? templates? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's really the right way to do it. So like for this production run that I did, I have like 10 different wheels. I basically just did the first one and I kept reiterating on that first one until I got it to a really sweet spot and then I was able to just uh, carry that over to all the other wheels and with no problem at all, because I already did all the R&D on that first one. And I would save the template, I'd, re I'd name it with everything like it's a half inch diameter, it's a helical part number, uh, I had this much stick out, uh, this is blah blah blah, and I, I put it all in there, right? And then when I look at it again, I don't even need to click it, and I can already see what I used it for, what material, how fast was I going, you know, blah blah, blah what worked, and then I can get an idea of like, okay, this was a good toolpath to use. Okay, that's of all the things we discussed, that's the winner. <laughs> Do that. <laughs> um, yeah, that's kind of what I was doing the wrong way um, by saving my, my fusion projects, like my test cut projects. And I would go pull the op out of there, but the template's a much more efficient way to do the same thing. And uh, and gets a double bonus. It, um, I don't know if they're there yet, but Fusion is working on, or Autodesk is working on making templates more manageable. Like they're going to... Um, I can't remember. It's in the roadmap. Speaking of which, the 2020 roadmap for Fusion 360 uh, has been posted out on the Autodesk uh, on the blog. So it's worth a read to see kind of what they're working on the next 12 months. But that was like cam templates is going to get a lot of work because uh, it's such a you know useful feature. So I think it's more around managing the the templates after they're created because the UI for that is pretty bad today, as you probably noticed. Um, it's going to get a lot better. It's going to be more like the tool library as far as the management interface. So you can kind of go in and sort them or and search for particular templates and edit them and uh, organize them. So that's, I think that's, I think today it's like one big long list, right? Uh, you'll be able to categorize and organize your templates. Uh, you know, maybe all your aluminum templates or all your aluminum single flute templates, all that kind of stuff. So that's that looks pretty good. I'm glad they're investing in that development yeah the other thing is i noticed is that as i start to move away from like inches per minute i just i i program everything based to service feet per minute and inch per tooth and then instead of instead of a distance of like 10 20 i just go percentage radio of diameter of tool and it's it's been so much easier for me and i, I have more success with it than me trying to guess what i think it'll work because it's all percentages right like if I go 15% step over on 100% depth of cut with um, this chip load and service speed, it seems to just work all the time, right? Which makes sense as a, it just should work that way. Um, but I've been having a lot of success with that, plus the templates. Um, I'm not having as much trouble getting, 
you know, the end mills to work if they're different sizes or whatever. It's just kind of the formula kind of works itself out. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, Kevin at the uh, Saunders class that we went to, um, instructor Kevin was trying to beat that into our head. <laughs> it sounds like it's stuck in your case and mine. It's like, I know it's there and I just, when I'm in the middle of doing something in fusion, like I need to stop and take the time and get some of that stuff organized like that leverages features infusion uh, much better um doing the kind of work i just did the last few weeks where it was uh you know basically programming took up a significant chunk of the overall like my costs my time budget for that um that would that stuff would have come in really handy if i already had it in place so yeah that's definitely uh worth leveraging and i learned this more at work you know, like when I'm programming, uh, let's say seven different jobs, they're all kind of similar, which is different widths or lengths, diameters or bores. And I need to be able to work quickly because I have not only am I programming for like the lathe, I'm also doing the water jet and the five axis. So I don't have a lot of time to like think about what I need to do. It needs to just kind of be there for me. So the templates have saved me a lot in Mastercam and I save a ton of them. And I spend the time to organize them so that I know if I need to machine peak. And we do like so many weird materials at work. That's also forced me to get better at organizing because I can't just guess anymore because I'm cutting weird stuff that I've never cut before. And I can't break tools like you know, that makes me look bad, you know, so because if I if I program it bad and the operators run and it breaks, like everyone finds out about it. it's embarrassing. So I for me, it's like having the template. I know like, OK, peak, I got it. Aluminum, Inconel, titanium, steel. No problem. I have these templates, I have these folders. I know what to go. And I, I even if I and I kind of make sure my stickouts are all kind of the same. And then if I if I need to stick out more, I'll make a separate thing for that as a special case scenario because typically a 1.25 inch stickout will cover most of the things that I need. And that way I, I have a repeatability on rigidity and vibration and stuff and deflection. So it, it's been very helpful in that sense. And But I wouldn't have learned that at home. It was because I was at work and I'm under kind of a fire and there's a lot of things to do that I have to be more efficient with like programming because it's just, it's a nonstop flow for me at work. There's always something for me to do. They're counting on me to get it out quickly, get it on the floor, proof it out and stuff. So I think that's where, yeah. A different level of expectation when there's a deadline. And, and the there's people waiting, waiting yeah. on you and the machine's exactly. waiting on you to be run. You know, like everything's waiting on you. There's, it's a more, uh, uh, it, it helps me to get better organized. And I think that's where I got it from. Yep. I'm, I'm, I've always been like that. I perform better under a deadline. So. <laughs> Self-observation, but um, yeah, pushes me to get better. So yeah, that's cool. Uh, I'm trying to think what else I got. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything new other than uh, I'll probably talk about the next DFX. So kind of been experimenting with um, getting like tight tolerance spores on the on the Neo. Uh, I think Ed. Reese, we talked a little bit about it on the last, on when Ed Reese was on the show, but uh, like there's some things you can do on the year to like basically optimize that as much as you can um, by removing run out, right? So if, like Dan was kind of sharing with me, use, use the eight millimeter shank tool if you can get away with it because you don't have the adapter, right? So that's one piece of run out removed from the tool run out we're talking about, right? Um, and not to mention it's a you know, more rigid tool potentially so uh, I've got a replacement tool for the one I was using for those two-tenths spores. 
210 Stallers Wars on the sewing guides uh, coming in. And I'm going to, you know, that job's done, but I'm going to kind of experiment and see, like, for next time if I can get even better. I had a little bit of variation. Um, it was within the tolerance, but I was getting close sometimes, right? And uh, and I came, actually, I came in under a few times. I had to rerun the op, like a whisper cut. To get it and one time that cut went over so i scrapped some parts so um yeah i want that i want like a really reliable uh predictable uh boring tool i guess you call it not literally boring but for the boring op infusion um yeah so did you ever have to uh replace the tool out of the 200 parts or you ran the same one yeah no so well other than the one millimeter tools that i broke those long reach stubs broke two of those um early into the process like the second plate the only I did wear out, um, I want to say it was the six millimeter single flute, but that tool was actually not new. Like I had it before the Neo and it had, had some miles. I actually don't know how much time I know. Um, so once you put it in the Neo, it tracks the time and the distance. And it had, let's see if I can remember, I want to say 300 minutes and like 1.2 kilometers of cut. Um, on the odometer, so to speak, right? Since in, in my Neo, so uh, yeah, it was starting, it was actually still fine. It was just, I noticed like the spindle load was going up a little bit on that tool. On And all I pretty much was using it for on the Neo was uh, full width of tool slotting or, you know, doing the OD, like the outside contour. Uh, so these are like vacuum held parts, half inch plates. So I would have to go around the outside diameter, I'm sorry, the outside uh, perimeter of the part, right? to cut all the way down through the plate to release the part. So it was pretty much full width cut on that tool. Um, and that's pretty much all I was using it for. So it had a pretty pretty hard life. And uh, yeah, so I saw like spindle load was starting to kind of creep up on it towards the, the latter set of plates or latter set of stock that I was doing. And at one point the tool, um, tool wear indicator on the TLO gave me a warning that the so it was a little, you know, it basically crossed the threshold. It was a little shorter than it originally was. Like, I can't remember what it's set to, but it's a pretty small amount. Um, so I went ahead and ran it, let it finish that up. And that's when I, you know, I definitely noticed the spindle load going up. Um, and when I pulled the tool out, it was fine, no chips, but you could definitely see like normally the flutes, the inside flute on the, the Datron four in one single flutes is like super highly polished. And this one was like matte at that point. Um, so I'll keep it as a roughing tool, like an experiment, you know, using for non-production parts as it's still good, but uh, I went ahead and replaced it. I had a sister tool ready to go. But other than that, everything else is still fine. I had no other warnings on uh, tool wear on any of the other tools I was using. I think the one, the probably the second most like heavily used tool I had was the four millimeter single flute. Um, actually two of them, I have the five, I have like a really short one, almost a stub, a five millimeter length and then uh, nine millimeter. Those are kind of like my go-to for roughing, uh, interior roughing. So those guys got a lot of use on the, uh, on these parts and they're still doing great. I haven't had to replace them. I would potentially try a sodium hydroxide bath on that six mil, uh, just to see if it's actual like erosion of the carbide or if it's just like a built up edge that's uh, dulling it. Yeah, it's possible. I'll, I'll take a look. It's a, it's actually like where I notice it, I mean, I see it on the outside, like the backside behind the flutes, um, but really notice like in the gullet 
because um, that's normally like a mirror on those tools, and it's uh, it looks more like a normal like a non date drawn single flute. It's kind of they're not usually polished as much, but uh, you're right. It could be a real thin layer of aluminum. But uh, I just I was you know when I got the warning plus the spindle load, I just you know probably the tool was fine, but just wasn't didn't I didn't have to trust it. I had another one to go right, and this was production parts, so why take the chance? Yeah, see what happens. I've never never tried that with the Daytron tooling. I've done some of my Lakeshore carbide coated tools in the lye bath, and that's worked to get some welded chips off. But never tried it on the uncoated tool. Do they turn black when you? Uh, they shouldn't. Okay. Yeah, but whatever the coated tools do, but they still cut fine. <laughs> There's that gold coating uh, turns which black. Which coating are you talking about? The ZRN. Yeah, if I dip those, they, I they end up with like this. I have not noticed that. I haven't okay. noticed that either. Uh, then maybe I'm dipping in the wrong stuff. <laughs> I'm just using like I'm using like chloric acid instead of sodium hydroxide. Oh, I was using um, lye, right? Is that the same thing? Pure lye. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was uh, maybe another stuff in there it was like drain cleaner. It wasn't pure lye. Yeah, back in the old days, <laughs> I don't do that anymore. I just buy new tools these days. But it seemed like a lot of money to buy an end mill, <laughs> even a cheap one. It's like you want to make it live, bring it back to life. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, a lot of stuff learned on this job um, about the Neo and also about just kind of how to run, uh, you know, to me, a large, what is a large volume of parts through on a pretty tight deadline. Uh, so we'll see. I took a lot of notes during this job on paper and, you know, little, like I keep a shop notebook. I, that's something I didn't do before. On the inside shop, I, you know, I would keep notes electronically sometimes, but now like I just had uh, uh, Urban Survival Gear TI Scribe, my favorite pen, <laughs> plug for Kelvin there. I had that out there, a little notebook, and just like every run I was taking notes. Um, that's part of like, that was a good tool for getting a uh, better cam. Cause I would like, first I was kind of focused on like plunges that shouldn't have been there, um, things that didn't sound right. So I went back and fixed those like on the next run. At some point I had everything kind of running the way I wanted and then it was, just watching and saying, oh, I could speed this op up that, you know, that cut sounds, you know, I'm not having any problems with it. I'm pretty sure I can push it. So I kept doing that, taking notes and then going back and, and, you know, like I back up my production cam and make a new version, test it. If I, if it was a keeper, then that became the new production cam. Cause I think in the end I ended up running like six, I want to say 16 plates plus a couple of test plates. Um, so there's like plenty of iterations to improve. And I, I ended up going from, 6.75 hours for a plate of 10 parts down to four hours per plate at 12 parts per plate by the end of the job. And uh, so I could, you know, by the end of that, I was getting two plates per eight hour shift. So double, basically double the productivity that I had on the first few plates by the end of the job. So that was kind of an eye-opening lesson for me. And that was all cam, like a little bit of it was my work process um, like overlapping some stuff that I was not overlapping when I didn't have to watch the machine as much it was easier to do like basically wrap the parts clean the parts wrap the parts that just came off and get them ready for shipping instead of having to wait till the end of the day because I had to keep my eye on the on the feed hold knob the whole time you know what I mean <laughs> so uh, yeah so that kind of that streamlined things once I could spend a little bit of time away from the machine um, and overlap some of the duties but uh, yeah I really kind of wish I had a shipping clerk this last week <laughs> That's probably the thing I miss more than anything. It's like, yeah, I, you know, I hear John talking about his people taking care of shipping. It's like, oh man, that would have been nice. 
but uh, little steps, right? Maybe eventually I'll get there. Yeah. Did you have a little work table set up for like shipping stuff, like with all your packing material, your tapes and everything? Yeah, I have a nice, uh, pretty long bench in the garage. Um, and I was, uh, I have uh, the long workbench I put in there and then I have um, like a roll around cart. This is usually my tooling cart for the Neo. But uh, that was actually kind of my, I, that was my staging area. So when the parts came off, I'd put them in a little tote, put them on the little roll around cart and clean them and deburr whatever that, you know, whatever I missed with the, with the programming, there's a little bit of hand deburring on those parts and then inspect them, measure them and then take them over to the workbench. And I had like uh, all my packing material ready to go. I would just get them to the point where they were like bundled and packed and then actually putting them together in the box and getting the label, all, all that stuff I did inside. Cause I already have like my little shipping station here left over from the, uh, the spinner days, right? I have my label printer and everything. Um, inside and most of my packing material. So yeah, I got a pretty good workflow for that by the, by the end of the process, like by the plate 15 and 16, <laughs> I felt like a pro, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the first few plates were kind of rough. It was like scrambling in the deadline was a little bit tighter at the beginning because they were behind by the time they even came to me <laughs> versus, uh, you know, when they needed the parts versus, uh, how much time it was going to take me to machine them. But, by the end of the process, we were we were like, I think I was sending them faster than they could put them on their equipment. So that was a good feeling too. Well, are we uh, almost out of time? Uh, we have gone over an hour, so. Oh, okay. Wow, I lost track. All right, well, uh, I don't know if you guys have anything else you want to throw in before we wrap up for the evening. Uh, nope, thank you for a fantastic conversation as always. Yeah, no, I'm good here. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, good night, guys. All right, right. Until next time, see ya.